I want to begin just, uh, as always, uh, seeking our Lord's favor in prayer, and we'll ask him to uh, bless our time in his word this morning. So would you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful. Every Sunday we get to gather as your people. We get to gather without fear of harassment. We get to gather with uh, freedoms that are actually quite uncommon in the history of the church. But uh, it's very common for us in this country, who've grown up in this country, for this generation. And um, Lord, we do not want to take that for granted. Thank you so much for the privilege of gathering together and to assemble in order to worship your holy name, to open up your word. And Lord, of course, we love to worship your, your, your holiness and adore who you are in the privacy of our own hearts throughout the week, and we love to open up your word when, when we can and to dive in and to find our hearts confronted and refreshed and revived and encouraged and informed. But there's something unique, Lord, about corporate worship, being able to gather together and seeing one another aggressively strive for holiness and strive for clarity of understanding in your word, and to strive for obedience, and to, to grow, and for our, our marriages and our parenting to become more and more Christ-like, and to see our relationships become more and more something that would honor your name. This is, this is uh, why corporate worship, Lord, is so invigorating, and we just thank you for the saints in this church. Thank you for the saints that uh, you use so marvelously with various and multifaceted gifts that become a blessing one to another. And Lord, we would be so greatly impoverished if we, if we had no corporate gathering, if we did not get to meet as your church, if all of our Bible study was only by ourselves. And so Lord, this morning we just ask that you would benefit us as your people with greater clarity from your word, and we pray that you would be glorified and that you would be honored as we worship you, both in this equipping hour and in the service, and that, uh, Lord, our worship would not only be pleasing to you, but that it would be mutually edifying one to another as we study, as we talk, as we converse, as we exhort one another to love and good deeds. So, Lord, we just pray that you'd bless this answer this prayer and bless this time simply for your glory and, and for our joy. And as always, Lord, we would long for your, the light of your gospel to shine in this uh, dark community as we live differently than those who worship um, man-made gods, gods of this world, gods of money and pleasure and self. We pray that our lives would be as distinct from the world as you are distinct from their gods. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, it is a joy and privilege to be able to dive back into God's Word and work through some of this material, and I've really enjoyed your, your feedback and your input and your, your comments, um, and so it's just been fun hearing how the Lord's been using this um, in your hearts. And, um, and as, I've, as I keep repeating week in and week out here in this the little discussion, this little series kind of called, Did God Really Say?, uh, the, the, the ultimate goal here is that we would be more equipped to read God's Word. We'd be more equipped to be able to read it and have confidence and know that we accurately understand what God meant by what he said. And that becomes such an incredible encouragement for us. Um, 
You know, to, 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 to not know if you really arrived at the meaning properly is, is, is hardly any better than no, not knowing the Bible at all. But having confidence that you know what God meant by what he said is everything. And um, so that's why when we hear the phrase, the meaning of scripture is the scripture, that's really getting at this very issue. We don't really have the scripture until we understand what God meant by what he said. And that's why this is such an important discussion. It really is a foundation for everything we do in the Christian life. It's a foundation for everything we know about God. It's a foundation for all of our relationships. It's a foundation for ever being able to glorify the Lord in our, in our life. Um, is really knowing what God meant by what he said. So what I want to do this morning, I'm going to do a quick review. We've, uh, we've been going at this for five weeks. This is part six this morning. And so before we get to part six, let me just do a little recap and review where we've been. Um, first week, I introduced this topic from Genesis 3, where Satan actually asked, um, did God really say, and he begins to cast doubt on what God meant by what he said. It's a hermeneutical question. Did God really mean that? Is that really what he meant? When he said those words, is that really what he meant? And then he goes on, of course, to cast doubt on God's word, whether it was really even true or not. But that's how he got there. The step one, before he just flat out um, attacks God as a liar, he starts to cast doubt on his meaning. And so Satan's number one tactic is through hermeneutics. To cast doubt on meaning. And so we spent some time, part one and part two, looking at some of the common uh, contemporary attacks on God's speech. We could call them common satanic attacks on God's speech. Because let's be honest, the attacks that we hear within and without the church against God's speech ability, they are really satanic. And so here's the three that we looked at. Number one, personal circumstance prevents a proper reading. And we looked at that, and the idea here is, as you remember, it's just... You know, the common accusation that you'll hear um, probably from family and coworkers and, and everywhere else, anybody who's uh, you know, not, not even a postmodern scholar, just anybody who lives today who has, does not believe God's word is going to have an accusation like this. They might say something like, oh, you can never escape your own situation. You can never escape your own tradition." You can never escape your own personality and your own heritage and your upbringing and the values that you bring to the text. You have a worldview, you bring it to the text, you can't escape it. So it's always affecting the scripture, it's always superimposed on top of scripture every time you open up the Bible. And that's a common accusation, we looked at how that's just, actually it's possible that that, that can happen, but that's not true that it always happens. The scripture instead is so powerful. It's so clear, it actually can overcome your presuppositions and your personal, personal circumstance. The second attack we looked at was differing interpretations disprove the scripture's clarity. And this is super common, and you hear this so often when people want to question the gospel that you shared with them and question whether there's really a judgment to come and question whether they really need to be forgiven for their sins. They'll just say, well, if the Bible's really as clear as you make it out to be, then how come you guys, all you Christians, can't come to an agreement? Why there's so many different denominations and so many different interpretations on various passages. And so the accusation here is such that, hey, if the scriptures were clear, everyone would agree what they mean. And that's no attack on the scripture unless the scripture, of course, says that they'll never be misunderstood, misinterpreted, 
confused, or twisted deliberately. But the scripture assumes that all of those are going to happen, and it prepares the church to know how to handle it. The third accusation is certainty interpretation is pride. Certainty equals pride. Doubt equals humility. So said Satan. So said Satan because the scriptures say that the humble man, the proud man, is actually the person who wanders away from God's commandments. So think about it. If I read a commandment from God, ah, what does that really mean? Can I really be certain that that's what that command means? I don't know. And I can sit there and deliberate in my uncertainty and never actually get around to obeying. And the Bible says that's proud. That's pride. The arrogant are those who wander from your commandments, Psalm 119.21 says. And Scripture flips the current uh, assessment that certainty is pride. It flips it on its head. And the Scriptures say that humility is, brings certainty and pride produces doubt. It takes a very proud individual to say that I know God said he told us what to do and the Bible says that God speaks with clarity, but I know better than God. That is the epitome of pride. Humility says, God says it's clear, I'm going to study it. It may not be readily accessible to me because I didn't live in that era and I got my work cut out for me, so perspicuity doesn't mean it's not hard work, but it does mean it's clear. And so... Humility says, God knows what he's talking about. And when I study it and I come to understanding, I can trust it. I can stand on it. And I will never be ashamed. Certainty is the fruit of humility, not pride. Doubt is the fruit of pride. And so those are three common, common attacks on God's speech. But when we Look at the Bible, and we realize the Bible presupposes a lot of things about hermeneutics, about how we interpret the Bible, how we read the Bible, how, how interpretation must happen. And this is what we looked at in weeks three, three, two through four. Um, the next slide has the biblical presuppositions about hermeneutics. So remember these three? Language, meaning, and interpretation. The Bible presupposes that language is an innate, innate ability of God. It's just an ability that he's always had in eternity past. There's never been a time where God did not have the innate ability of interpersonal communication. And God starts speaking in Genesis 1.26, among us, God says in the first person plural. And there's interpersonal communication uh, in Genesis 1 and, and Genesis 3 and Genesis 11. And, and you just see this interpersonal communication. It's an ability that he's always had. And he creates man in his image, and then he begins speaking to man, and man understands God because God has had this ability. He creates man in his own image, and now man has this ability by virtue of being created in his image. And then man starts speaking back to God, and then man can speak to man. And you see all throughout the scripture this interpersonal communication ability of mankind because we're created in his image. And so language, especially when we think about scripture, human language is not second rate. God does not apologize for speaking to us in human language. It's completely adequate, and he delights to do so. Secondly, we saw that meaning is singular. God doesn't say one thing and means seven things. He says one thing and means one thing. And we see that meaning is determined by the author or speaker, not the reader, not the community, 
the author or the speaker. And third, interpretation. The Bible presupposes that the meaning can be discovered accurately by anyone who understands the grammar and the historical context in which that text was written or that prophecy was spoken. That's what the Bible presupposes about language, meaning, and interpretation. And so, last week, part five, is kind of a second half of this, this series where we're just looking at, now, in the last four weeks here, what does the Bible practice? So we looked at what the Bible presupposes about hermeneutics. Well, how, what does the Bible practice? Did you know that the Bible practices interpretation? Of course you did if you were here last week, because last week we noticed that... Oh, the massive majority of times that the Old Testament is quoted by the New Testament, even critics have to admit that it's pretty straightforward. These Old Testament texts are pretty clear, and the New Testament authors are paying attention to those Old Testament texts, and they just take them at straightforward, literal meaning. And, but there's a few passages that become problem passages, because I made the point last week that every time the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, the biblical authors practice what the Bible already presupposed about language, interpretation, and meaning. And so, we looked at a few examples that were obvious, and we just acknowledged, you can multiply that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times over, but there still remain these problem passages that seem to cause us trouble and think, well, maybe there's something unique about interpretation. Maybe we have to do something funny, or maybe we have to read between the lines, or maybe there's some secret key or some theological lens that we need to read the scriptures through in order to make sense of what God has given us in his word. And so last week we looked at Matthew 2.15, where he quotes Hosea 11.1. And we found out that, no, Matthew is actually paying attention to Hosea, and Matthew understands that when Hosea says, out of Egypt I've called my son, he's saying just like Hosea redeemed Gomer when Gomer was unfaithful to him, God will continue to redeem Israel even though Israel was unfaithful to him. And in the context of Hosea 11.1, for God to redeem Israel a second time out of the upcoming future slavery, it's going to require the installment and preservation of a king that Israel could not provide of her own making. And so when Matthew sees Jesus preserved as an infant, in line with all of the other attacks and assaults on the Davidic line throughout the Old Testament, not when he goes out of Egypt, when he goes into Egypt, Matthew says that was the fulfillment of the preservation of the king so that God could redeem Israel out of slavery. Well, there's another text that I'm going to look at this morning that has caused a lot of people problems, and this is one of those texts that a lot of people would point to as the very proof that you have to read the Bible through a Christocentric lens. And um, I was, I was uh, teaching, talking with the guys uh, in the trust on, on Friday morning, and we were talking about this very issue. And it's just fun to think about for a second, because you know, if you've been here in this equipping hour, you've probably heard me say these, these comments, uh, you know, that I have a very significant problem with what's called the Christocentric hermeneutic. And that can sound very disrespectful if you think I'm saying I'm against Christocentrism. Hey, I love Christocentric theology. I mean, let's be frank. We have the privilege of worship, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ for eternity. We cannot give Christ too much glory or too much honor. He is worthy of it all, every bit as much as his Father and his Spirit are worthy of glory. So I'm not opposed to Christocentric theology, <laughs> 
What I'm if the text warrants it, it does, and it does. But what I'm opposed to is Christocentric hermeneutics, because that is a reading of Scripture which is looking for a meaning. We need to be reading the Scripture to pay attention to what did God say. Let God speak about every subject and any subject that he chose to reveal to us. The serious problem with Christocentric hermeneutics is, newsflash, you and me both, we have an inadequate Christology right now. Our Christology is not 100%, is it? We're saved. We love Christ. If we're, if we're willing to do God's will, then we understand his truth. But we haven't been glorified yet. We're still in process. And I don't know what, if you could come up with a percentage of where we fall on a, a glorified mind that has 100% accurate Christology. I don't know where I would, you know, we could put ourselves on that spectrum. But none of us are at 100% right now. So if I go to the Old Testament, and I read it through the lens of my current Christology, guess what? I just forced a perfect, infallible testimony of the glories of the second person of the Trinity through a filter that is flawed. I don't want to read the scriptures through my current Christology. I want to read the scriptures and let that continue to bolster and increase and improve my current Christology. And so what happens is the glory of Christ, ironically, gets muted and blurred. The resolution gets turned down. In the scriptures, we have more than high def, more than 4K, 5K, 20K, whatever the number happens to be of whatever you know, month of development and technology. This is beyond high def. And if we decide to read with some chosen hermeneutical lens, we are actually going backwards from, you know, back to the old color or maybe even the old rabbit ear antenna to the old snowstorm on the TV and it's just pixelated. And all that's left is my current theology and I don't get the precision of each and every text that speaks with absolute clarity. I need those texts. I need the meaning of those texts. This morning, we're going to spend our time looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And this is a text, as I mentioned, that um, has really been a, a battleground for this very issue that I'm talking about. Namely, should we be reading Christ into the Old Testament? And one group of Christians would say, yes, we can and yes, we must, because that's exactly what Paul does. And I would say, no, I don't believe that that's accurate. I believe that Paul is actually reading the Old Testament in a straightforward manner. But let me read to you the passage very briefly. Um, we'll read the whole passage. Um, I plan to read the whole passage here toward the end and do a little comment on this, on this whole section. Uh, this section goes from 10 verse 1 all the way down to verse 13. And then verse 14 builds on that very exhortation when he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And we'll get to that in a second. But let's just dive in at verse 4, because this becomes the very text that becomes the fuel for this whole debate. All, speaking of the, our forefathers, the Jewish patriarchs, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. 
He's talking about the Exodus, and if you remember the story of the Exodus, particularly chapter 17, that's the chapter on Massah and Meribah, testing and and trial. And this is when they were thirsty, they did not have anything to drink, Moses struck the rock, God provided them drink out of the rock, and their thirst was quenched. And so, Paul makes the statement that Christ is there in the narrative, and this group of Christians that say you need to read the Old Testament uh, through a Christocentric lens or through a Christological theology, they would say that's exactly what Paul's doing here because Jesus doesn't show up in Exodus 17. One example of this would be uh, Julius Kim, and he models the redemptive historical hermeneutic in his handling of this passage. He appeals to uh, several passages, I'll read them to you in just a second, and he, he, he reads these passages, and then he kind of makes this vague assertion that in the Exodus 17 context, the rock has connotations of a creator, a savior, and a redeemer. And so in that story of Moses striking the rock and the people drinking out of the rock, he says there's connotations there of a savior and a redeemer. Deuteronomy 32.15 says, Uh, that uh, Israel forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. 32.18 says, You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. Psalm um, 78.35 says, And they remembered that God was their rock and the most high God, their redeemer. Psalm 95.1, Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. And so there's four passages where God is a rock, and God is a redeemer as a rock. He is a, he, there's a rock of salvation, and um, so on and so forth. And so he says, so therefore, when Moses struck the rock, there's a foreshadowing of the redeemer, savior, God. A little bit more developed would be Dennis Johnson's articulation of this passage. And I, this was going to be pretty long. This next one has, is a pretty lengthy quote, and I, and I included it on the PowerPoint so you can follow along, but I'm going to give commentary between because it's, I wanted to give you, just so you know that I'm not um, you know, whitewashing this whole thing, I want you to appreciate what, what's being said here about this passage. Um, Dennis Johnson, he, he says this, some scholars have understood Paul's use of the, and the word there, typos, is just the word uh, type, example. Example, I think uh, NAS has in verse um, 11, they use the word example. So when you see typos, think of type or example. Some scholars have understood Paul's use of the type language here to indicate nothing more than a moral example or a negative lesson from past history without any predicative connection between the situation of the wilderness generation and that of the New Testament church. Type is sometimes used in this sense, as we have seen. Here, however, Paul's use of Israel's wilderness experience to warn the Corinthian church against idolatry and sensuality presupposes a relationship between ancient Israel and the church that is more than mere analogy. So he's saying there's more than just a mere analogy or comparison between Israel and the church. In other words, Dennis Johnson here is saying that Paul's employing typological hermeneutics. You just have to look at types and patterns and examples. And you look at that in your reading of the Old Testament because he believes that Paul is 
It presupposes a connection between the Israel of old and church today so that the failures and the sufferings of Israel are to be interpreted as more than an analogy for the church. In this next slide here, you're going to see that his, his point is that symbolism can be expressed with an explicit simile, which would mean like or just as, or just simply with a metaphor. You can just make a metaphor. Here's what he says. First, the apostle bluntly affirms that the rock from which Israel drank miraculous water was Christ, verse 4. Biblical language commonly expresses symbolism using a simple verb of identification. The Lord is my shepherd. I am the true vine. This bread is my body. In other words, Scripture often uses metaphor, implicit comparison, rather than simile, explicit comparison, using like or as. The wilderness rock, when struck with the judgment blow of the rod of God, supplied life-giving water to God's thirsty people. Exodus 17, verses 1-7. through Such provision and privilege, however, did not make the members of the covenant community immune to judgment when they later engaged in idolatry and sexual sin. The rock's role as source of the water of life for Israel prefigured Christ's provision of the life-giving spirit to his church. But simply being numbered among the members of the New Testament church does not insulate a person from divine judgment if the person commits infidelity by engaging in idolatrous worship. So here the point is that the rock in Exodus 17, according to Dennis Johnson, prefigured Christ. It was a prefiguring. When you read Exodus 17, you should think, oh, okay, there's, there's an expectation here of, uh, because this rock gave them water, there's an expectation of a Messiah that's going to um, satisfy the people's needs. Then, according to Dennis Johnson, Paul connects the Exodus to the church by way of using church ordinance terminology, namely baptism and Lord's Supper. Listen to this. Okay, second, this is second. So there's a second and a third. So you guys are doing great if you're following me so, so far. I know it's early on a Sunday morning. Second and then third. We've got two, two more quotes here. Second, Paul describes Israel's exodus blessings in terms that cannot fail to bring Christians to Christians' minds the sacraments of the new covenant, baptism and the Lord's Supper. All Israel was baptized into Moses in the cloud and the crossing of the Red Sea, and they ate of the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, 1 Corinthians 10, 2-4. Paul, watch this, interprets, Paul interprets Israel's passage. And I don't believe those italics are, are, are uh, mine. I believe that's the original. I'm going to pull that right out of his book. Paul interprets Israel's passage through the Red Sea as a preview of the church's initiation sign, baptism identification with Christ. Even as Israel was identified with Moses, the typological covenant mediator slash redeemer. By passing through the waters of death and emerging into a new life of liberty, Paul is assuming the typological correspondence already disclosed in Jesus' bread of life discourse in John 6. And so he's admitting that Paul is interpreting the Exodus as a preview of the church. The Exodus here is interpreted by Paul, apparently, as a preview and anticipation of the church with its baptism and Lord's Supper. Third, Johnson, Johnson's going to go on to say that the failures and sufferings of Israel that they experienced are primarily for us. This is, I find this actually very insulting to the saints of old. He says, third and most important is Paul's explicit designation of the redemptive historical location 
of his Corinthian brothers and sisters. Israel's desert trials and failures were inscripturated for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. 1 Corinthians 10.11. Paul makes explicit the eschatological, that just means end times, the, the future uh, element, uh, implicit in biblical typology. His point is not simply that history repeats itself or that ethical lessons can be learned by observing others' actions and their consequences in like circumstances in the past. Rather, Paul insists that God's purpose in the experiences of Israel's wilderness generation and the recording of those experiences in Scripture concerned not primarily ancient Israel by the new people of God, um, composed of believing Jews and Gentiles who lived in first century Corinth and all such other audience who, audiences who live at the end of the ages. Well, sadly, this, interp- this approach to interpretation really leads to some very, very ridiculous conclusions. How should we interpret the story of Jael and Sisera? Do you remember them? Sisera was the commander of the Canaanite army. Jael was the wife of Heber, the Kenite, and there was peace between the Kenites and the Canaanites. And so after the, Ken- after the Canaanites are absolutely uh, uh, annihilated by the Israelites, Sisera tucks his tail and runs. All his men are wiped out. He flees, and uh, Jael tries to uh, invite and summons him to come stay and, and find refuge at their place. And so he says, sure. So he comes running in there and, and hides. She gives him some milk. She covers him with a blanket. He falls asleep. And then he dri- she drives a tent peg through his head. I know. <laughs> it's a crazy story. Clearly... The New Testament commands Christians to admonish one another. And wouldn't you know that the word for admonish in Greek is a compound word between mind and to place into. To admonish means to put something into the mind. And obviously, Jael did that to Sisera in a very tangible and physical fashion. And so obviously, the tent peg is Christ. And we need to admonish one another by putting stuff into the mind. And by the way, there was even... The language used of drinking the milk. I mean, obviously, Sisera was longing for the pure milk of the word, and Jael was admonishing him and putting truth into his mind. I mean, where is that going to end? And Paul says, I have the mind of Christ. I mean, we could just draw all sorts of types and analogies and metaphors because that's just as unspoken as what Dennis Johnson is doing with 1 Corinthians 10.4. Obviously, it becomes very ridiculous. And that's so ridiculous. I obviously picked a, made up a completely ridiculous example. Uh, it might not even be the best example. I made it up early this morning, so it probably wasn't a good example. But, uh, you know, if he no doubt heard what I just said about Jael and Sisera, he would completely say, that's ridiculous. And, but my point would be, where do you draw the line? On your principles, the only reason you wouldn't go there to Jael and Sisera is because you're uncomfortable with it. Not because of the principles that you actually use to interpret the Old Testament. But now the question remains, what is happening in 1 Corinthians 10? What does Paul mean by what he says? And what did Moses mean by what he said? And what did God mean in both? Let's go back to verse 1. Now the slideshow is done. Now you can just get your Bibles out. And we're all, breathe a breath of fresh air. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were 
all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Now you probably heard me emphasize the word all because it occurs five times in four verses. The emphasis here, Paul is emphasizing that every single individual in the wilderness generation benefited from this ministry that was happening in the story of the Exodus. Every single one of them benefited. They were exposed to incredible spiritual privilege. They saw incredible signs and wonders. Every single one of them. We're going to put a brief pause on that point because I'm already starting to preach 1 Corinthians 10 because the meaning of 1 Corinthians 10 is so, so, so important. But before we keep going in verses 5 through 13, we need to pause and say, Paul, what are you doing here with this discussion about Christ in Exodus? So let's go back to Exodus. Turn back in your Bibles to Exodus 17. Let's read the story. Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7. And this would be, I'm going I'm to basically commit a fallacy here. I'm just going to read this little paragraph, and then I'll ask you the rhetorical question that you're already going to know the answer to. Where is Christ in verses 1 through 7? Verse 1, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and encamped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? Or what shall I do to this people? That's, <laughs> that's a different meaning. That's important. What shall I do to this people? That's what I would have been saying. A little more and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah, and Meribah, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And that's the very meaning. Those are Hebrew words for quarreling and testing. Where's Christ? He's not in verses 1 to 7. Okay. Close your Old Testament. Go back to 1 Corinthians. Yep. Paul doesn't really pay super close attention to the Old Testament. He just kind of reads Christ in because he's a Christian and... I think that that's probably about as knowledgeable of the Old Testament some of these people might, must be if they would conclude that Paul's seeing something that's not happening in the Old Testament. To understand what's happening, we have to read in context what's actually going on in the book of Exodus. 
Fast forward to chapter 23, Exodus 23. Moses has already given the people the Ten Commandments, and now he's going to reveal, God is revealing to Moses, or through Moses to the people, he's revealing to them a messenger who is going to have a unique function in the nation's life, namely this messenger is going to get them to the promised land. Verse 20, Exodus 23, verse 20 Behold, I'm going to send an angel, and that word angel is messenger. I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. So watch out, be very aware, you must obey whatever this person tells you to obey. Now, that could be something prophetic. It could be like a Moses or a Jeremiah or any of the prophets. If you disobey a prophet of God who's speaking on behalf of God, you're disobeying God. But notice where it goes. The language quickly goes beyond anything capable of being spoken of a mere human prophet. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. This is God speaking, Yahweh God speaking. And he says, my name is in this individual. It's a messenger of Yahweh who is actually sharing in the same name, the same character, the same reputation, the same essence. This is a divine person. God would never say, my name is in a creature. Verse 22, but if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, I read it pretty quick, but just slow down and think about that for a second. But if you... Truly obey his voice and do everything I say. God draws an equal sign between whatever comes out of his mouth and whatever comes out of the angel of Yahweh's mouth. If you obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you to the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. And this is exactly what the angel of the Lord does every time he shows up. He continues to be a promise of, I will get you to the promised land. I will establish rest. I will prepare you so that God can dwell peaceably in your midst and establish peace from border to border. There will be a reverse of the curse. I'm going to get you to the promised land. That's what the angel of the Lord is going to do. And you remember the story of Balaam? He went to curse the people on the way to the promised land. And who showed up to cut off his head? The angel of the Lord. He's an adversary against everyone who's an adversary of Israel, and he's an, uh, an ally to everyone who's an ally of Israel to get them to the promised land. Now, Exodus 23 is really the first time that it becomes inarguable that the um, angel of the Lord is a divine person, but he's shown up throughout the Torah at this point. He's shown up several times in Genesis, called the angel of Yahweh. He's called the angel of God. Um, He's called, he, he's, he shows up in Exodus, at Exodus 3, the angel of Yahweh shows up at a burning bush and it's not being consumed and he says, uh, I will be the he whom I will be. Uh, he's clearly a divine person. But now to get to our point, how does this relate to the Exodus and the ministry of Moses getting the people out of Egypt, let's go back to a particular use of the angel of the Lord. Uh, let's pick it up in chapter 13. Exodus 13, verse 21. 
Remember uh, in Sunday school, and if you, were, if you grew up in the church, you remember in Sunday school, you know, the, little, the fire and the, the cloud that led the people? I remember seeing it on flannel graph. You know, the little flannel graph fire and the little flannel graph cloud. And it was cloud by day, it was fire by night. Um, and I just thought that was pretty cool. But it wasn't until I really became a Christian and started reading my Bible that I was able to appreciate the significance of that manifestation of the very presence of the Lord. Verse 21 says, The Lord, that's just the word Yahweh, Yahweh was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they may, might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. The Lord is in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. That is the very presence of God himself. Now turn over to chapter 14, verse 19. Here's another use of the angel of God. This is not the first use of the angel of God. It's used in Genesis. Namely, the first time would be Genesis 21, 17. And I believe there's a three or four times in Genesis where the angel of God shows up. But here's the angel, the messenger of Yahweh, described in Exodus 23 as sharing the same name as God, Yahweh God, speaking identical meaning and identical content to Yahweh. The angel of God, verse 19, who had been going before the camp of Israel... So God was in the pillar of cloud, uh, he was in the pillar of fire, and now it says that the angel of God was in the pillar of cloud that was going before them. He moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Why? Because the threat to Israel getting to the promised land is behind them. This is the very function of the angel of the Lord, is to fulfill land promises and getting Israel to the land. And now the threat is behind them, so angel of God, another divine person, distinct from Yahweh himself, comes behind the people as a protection from the threat. Verse 31, when Israel saw the great power with which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. God delivered them, as always. He's, he's always faithful. The angel of the Lord always does, fulfills his role. You go back to, the, you can think in the, the language that Paul just mentioned in 1 Corinthians 10. The rock followed them. I haven't read anything into Exodus. I'm just paying attention to Exodus. And I see a second divine person who is following the Israelites. I just read it. In context. Just paying attention to 13 and 14 and 23. And somebody just kind of does the bumper sticker cross-reference thing and reads 17, 1 to 7 says, Nope, it's not there. Let's get crazy with hermeneutics. What? What happened? Just... Pay attention to what God said. He knows how to communicate. He speaks very clearly. And here's Christ behind the people of God. And Paul says the rock was following them. So now we know why he was following. But why the rock? Is, Jesus, is Paul saying Jesus was the rock? Look back at 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 10, 4. Does he say that Jesus was the rock? Nobody wants to answer 
Like, I don't know what to do at this point. What do we do? Well, let's just read verse 4. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Paul says it's a spiritual rock. So he is actually, yes, Christ is in the narrative. Christ is in the Exodus. He's all over the Exodus narrative. To to, to call him the angel of the Lord is very appropriate. To call him the angel of God is very explicit. To call him Jesus of Nazareth would be anachronistic because he has not taken on humanity yet. But Christ is there in the Old Testament. He's right there in the Exodus narrative. And he does follow the people literally. But Paul makes it very clear that he says that it's a spiritual rock that I'm talking about. So he's not saying that the literal, physical rock of Exodus 17 is Christ. He is saying that Christ is literally there in the ministry, in the immersion into the Red Sea, in the immersion into Moses' ministry, and the deliverance out of Egypt. All of that is the ministry of Christ himself. And spiritually, he's the rock. So let's just ask the question. Literally, what is a rock? It's hard. It hurts if you trip and fall onto it. It's heavy. Okay, great. What about in this story? In this story, what's the rock doing? It's the source of water. It's the source of sustenance. It sustains them and it gives them life. Paul is making the point that Jesus is the spiritual equivalent of the rock, but he's not reading him into the narrative. He's saying this source of life was there protecting them, ministering to them, and every single individual shared in and benefited from the very ministry of Christ himself. He's not doing anything fancy. He's paying attention to Exodus. Now, let's look at what he, what he does with this. And this is where it becomes really, really fascinating. We've got we to wrap this up here, and we've got to move through the rest of this paragraph in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 5, one of the most classic understatements in all of the Bible. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Most being 99.9999%, two, Joshua and Caleb being the exception. With most, he was displeased. You know, there's Joshua and Caleb. At this point, if Paul had read Christ into the Old Testament, the point would be lost. See, it's interesting. If you, if you, if you do something fanciful with hermeneutics and you start finding meaning that's not actually there, you, you, you actually ruin Exodus. And in this case, you actually mess up 1 Corinthians 10 as well. Because 1 Corinthians 10 has a very clear point. And its point is not just, hey, there's some people a long time ago who did poorly. Make sure you do better. The point is, I'm not making anything up, Corinth. And now I can say it to us this morning as believers. GBC, I'm not making any of this up. Every individual in that wilderness generation personally benefited from Christ's ministry. And yet, even with the personal exposure to Christ, actual Christ's ministry, not a spiritualized, read-into-the-text type of Christ. They actually experienced Christ's ministry personally, and they did not all get to the promised land. 
That's a whole nother degree of warning. If Paul's finding things in the Old Testament aren't there, then it's just nothing more than bummer for them. Too bad they didn't have Christ, but yeah, let's read Christ in and let's make a moral exhortation out of it. No, he says, no, they had the same Christ you have. Now watch what he does with that. Verse 6, and we're going to move really quickly here. I'll just make a quick comment on each of these verses. We've got to get to verse 12, 11 to 13. Verse 6, Now these things happened as examples for us that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And so this becomes an example or a type, and his warning is don't covet, verse 6. Verse 7, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, and as it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. That's Exodus 32, the golden calf. They are partying, they are celebrating, they've created an idol. And so he says, Do not be idolaters. Don't commit idolatry like they did. They did not commit idolatry because they were never exposed to Christ. They committed idolatry in spite of being exposed to Christ's personal ministry. Verse 8, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Numbers 25, read it. Balaam was unsuccessful cursing them with witchcraft, so he perverts the people of God by seducing them through means of the Moabite women. It's a classic tactic of false teachers, the sin of sensuality. And if you read Numbers 25, you'll know that it says 24,000. And people say, oh, inconsistency. Well, it says, here it just says in one day. So all I can surmise is that one, it was over midnight or it was over 6 p.m. So 20, you know, 24,000 died. 23,000 of those were in one day. They didn't commit immorality because they'd never been exposed to Christ's ministry. They committed immorality in spite of being exposed to Christ's ministry. Verse 9. Nor let us try the Lord or test the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. That's referring to Numbers 21. They, they're testing God regarding his purposes for bringing them out of Egypt, saying, what purpose did he have bringing us out of Egypt? Because they're hungry and they're thirsty, and they're saying, we're going to die out here. And so they test the Lord, and God sent serpents, and they were destroyed. Thousands died in Numbers 21. Number verse 10 nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's talking about number 16, not the sons of Korah, but in follow-up to the sons of Korah. After the sons of Korah were consumed by the earth, you have people complaining the second day against Moses and his leadership. And they are destroyed by the destroyer. And you can read that in number 16, verse 41, through chapter 17, verse 13. So in verse 6, Coveting, verse 7, idolatry, verse 8, immorality, verse 9, testing God, verse uh, 10, grumbling. Those five sins are put forth as an example, and those five sins were committed by an entire generation, not not because they had never been experienced Christ's ministry, but in spite of it, verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed that he does not fall. And it's very important now, GBC. I want to make this point. This this connects to hermeneutics. I want to make sure that we read verse 12 and 13 
together, and you're going to see why it's so important that Paul is not reading Christ into Exodus, but he's actually reading him out of Exodus. He's actually drawing him out of Exodus on the very pages of, of, of the Scriptures. Verse 12 says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Sometimes it's easy to misconstrue verse 13 as though it's an encouragement when things are really difficult to just say, I'm glad this is just common to man. I'm glad everybody goes through this. That's not Paul's point here. Paul's point is not just, hey, be encouraged. Everybody goes through this. Read it with verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. You have an entire generation coming out of Egypt personally exposed to the ministry of Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God's own Son, the angel of Yahweh, the angel of God, the anointed, the Messiah himself. They had all of that privilege and all of that benefit Do not presume that because you're part of the church and because you benefit from Christ's ministry that you will just stand automatically. If you think you are ready for the challenge and if you are confident that you will stand, beware lest you fall in complete unison with that sentiment. Verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. The point of this warning is watch out for the common sins. They will lead you to apostasy. You had members of that generation not make it to the promised land because of grumbling, complaining, testing God, questioning Him about His purposes. That's pretty sober, isn't it? That's clearly the way that verse is meant, 13a, because 13b, NAS has, and God is faithful. It's interesting, in the original, that's a disjunctive conjunction. And so it, it's a, it, it, it's, these aren't joined together. There's a little bit of a transition here, if not even a, a contrast. And perhaps a better way to translate this would be, but God is faithful. Over here, you've got a real danger that we could fall, even in spite of benefiting from Christ's ministry, we could fall if we grow proud and expect that we will stand we will fall prey to the common temptations. We shouldn't be thinking, what happened if I had one of those you know, type, of, type of tests this week that people write biographies about? We should be saying, what happens if I'm prone to grumble or complain on Monday morning? What happens if I'm tempted to question God's purposes when things don't go the way that I want them to? No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful. There's a transition there. That's where you go, because you don't have what it takes to stand. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with that temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will not be able to endure it. It's a powerful warning. It's a powerful passage. I love 1 Corinthians 10, because it is ministered to my heart. And just even knowing that I was going to teach this morning, I was rebuked on my drive home last night about some grumbling and complaining in my own heart. It was a, by the God's very grace, it was just a stopgap. It, it just stopped me as I was clearly frustrated, grumbling in my heart, and I'm just like, look what I'm preaching tomorrow. 
There it is. There's the heart of John Anderson on display. Watch out. Don't say, good thing it's just complaining, everybody. That's, that's common to man. No, it's common to man. Watch out for that one. It's common. And don't presume because I benefit from the ministry of Christ. Because they benefited from the ministry of Christ. And the whole weight of the warning falls apart if Paul read Christ into the Exodus narrative. He's actually there. And so that kind of hermeneutic, not only does it injustice to Exodus, it does injustice to 1 Corinthians. So hopefully that's encouraging for you. Let's just go ahead and end our time with a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful that your word is so clear. And again, just every week we keep opening up your word and we find out the answer to the question, did you really say, is yes, you really did. Lord, thank you for speaking so clearly. Thank you for ministering to our hearts. And even just in light of, if we get away from the focus on hermeneutics and very appropriately apply this text to our hearts, Lord, um, thank you for the warning, the very gracious warning to watch out, to take heed, to watch out for the very pride that would think that we have within us the ability to stand or that we would even presume on New Testament privilege thinking that because we benefit from Christ, we would somehow be immune or be able to avoid further consequence. Lord, uh, that generation certainly is a warning to us because they actually did benefit from your son's ministry. And here we are in your church benefiting from the revelation of your first coming, benefiting from the atonement, benefiting from your shed blood, benefiting from a perfect life that took our sin, died in our place, and gave us a clean conscience, gave us spiritual life, and gave us for the first time in our existence an actual ability to respond to your truth. And Lord, if we spurn that, and if we grumble, and if we complain, and we pursue lust, and we tolerate idolatry and coveting, we will not survive. And so I pray, Lord, that uh, we would take heed lest we fall, and thank you for being so faithful. We want to remain faithful throughout whatever trial or temptation you bring us, and we'll give you the glory for it. In your name we pray. Amen.